The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He's been called the father of comedy, and for centuries his plays have been valued for their wit, their bold ideas, their licentiousness, and their fearless attacks on the politicians and philosophers of his era. His era, as it happens, was Periclean Athens, that great period when intellectual giants like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle walked the earth. Add his name to theirs, Aristophanes, who did for comedic satire what Euripides and Aeschylus and Sophocles were doing for tragedy. What were his plays about? How close to the bone did they cut? How much can we enjoy them today? And does our society have anything like their equivalent? We'll talk to the translator of Aristophanes, Aaron Puchigian, about all this and more today on the History of Literature. Okay, hello, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you're here today to join us. This is the start, people. I don't know why I'm so excited about this. We did two episodes a week for months, and then we pulled back, and now we are back on a two-episode-a-week schedule for June, and I am excited. It's as if we're on the verge of something new and great and unprecedented. It's how I feel. And for a lot of you, it's probably just the same old, same old. You know why that phrase is repeated, right? Same old, same old. Because we don't even elevate the object to... Look, look, what's the alternative? Same old junk. Same old garbage. Same old shit. That would require some energy. That requires us to do some thinking. That requires a a flicker of passion, a modicum of engagement, a millisecond of our time, a flash of brain power. And this, this doesn't even rise to that level. This doesn't even warrant the time it takes to sort through the different choices and, and take one and roll it out there with the tongue. Same old, oh, let's see, same old detritus. No, same old trash. No, same old, I don't have time for this. It's not even worth it. I'll just say, same old, same old. What a great phrase. Speaking of great phrases, we have a great phrase maker here today, a caretaker of the great phrase, a devotee, a language maven, a classicist, Aaron Puchigian, who I'm not here just to hawk books, people. I'll be straight with you. I know that guests usually have something they like to sell. Well... In this case, I don't mind hawking a book. I have this one in hard copy, and my goodness, it's a thing of beauty. It feels good in the hand. It has heft and weight and a gorgeous cover. It's a reminder of how great an object, a physical object, that a well-designed book can be. Our friend the book designer is no doubt smiling. <laughs> Hope she's doing well. And... This book has the sort of contents that belong on your shelf, too. Four great plays by the great Aristophanes in a new translation. Clouds, Birds, Lysistrata, and Women of the Assembly. It's a nifty little gift, a worthy gift for those fathers in your life who like to read great books with Father's Day being around the corner, but it's also a great birthday gift. There's something to put on your wish list for the holidays or something to treat yourself with for the summer. So, you will hear all about that soon when Aaron joins us. Aaron is an expert in ancient languages, which is good for a translator, and he's also a poet himself, another great skill for someone translating, especially one working in verse. How do you capture the musicality of one language and convey it in another? Well, if you're translating Spanish to Portuguese, maybe that's not so difficult to do a sort of one-to-one translation, but ancient Greek to contemporary English. We'll talk about those challenges with Aaron. We'll talk about his own surprising start, what drew him to a life in classical literature in the first place. And of course, we'll talk about Aristophanes. So let's do this. We'll take a quick break. 
Then we're going to run through our mailbag, and I'll give you some background on Aristophanes, what we know of him and what we know of his era. And then, after those appetizers, the meal shall arrive. A little soup, a little salad, and then the feast. All that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Time to open the mailbag. Do we have a sound effect for this? Can listeners hear the mailbag as I open it? No, I I know I don't have an actual bag. I mean a sound effect. Something that you can insert. Don't you have one for a mailbag? Mailbag opening? Okay, that's the mailbag. Our mailbag sounds like a symbol in reverse. (laughs) Don't we use that all the time? How lazy can do we have anything that sounds more like a mailbag? Or how about the how about the doorbell? We have a doorbell. Like ding dong, mailman's here. No? What? Oh boy. That's the same old. Same old. Moving on. First up, listener Jonathan has been enjoying the podcast and has a suggestion for us. A true story by Lucian an author from the Roman Empire. Lucian was a Greek-speaking Syrian author who wrote in the 2nd century A.D. Jonathan says, quote, Written in 200 A.D., a true story is perhaps the first satire or science fiction tale, depending on how you look at it. It begins with Lucian, paraphrasing here, stating that since other great figures tend to embellish their tales of triumph, Lucian will try a technique called lying. What follows is a highly readable tale, even to the modern viewpoint, in which the characters travel past rivers of wine, ride a 200-mile-long whale, then go to the moon to witness a war between moon dwellers and the army of the sun. It ends with a promise of a sequel, which confounds many scholars who say that since this sequel never materialized, that was the biggest lie of all. And in my opinion, says Jonathan, What really sets this apart is its readability. This is like the Hurrian Hymn, a 6,000-year-old song that is still listenable. Well, let me pause there, Jonathan. Let me cut you off. What a coincidence. I was just listening to the Hurrian Hymn. That's the music we heard going into and coming out of the break. And listen to this part where the Hurrian Hymn gets all metal. known melody 6,000 years old the hearing him and my goodness you know I get all puffed up sometimes I'll read a note that some famous book of poetry sold 21 copies and I'll think wow that's that's a few minutes worth of downloads here at the history of literature podcast we're doing okay Moby Dick sold 3,700 copies in Melville's lifetime 
And we're at how many millions of downloads? Poor Herman and yay us. Bravo, History of Literature podcast, the little podcast that could. Only five years of toil, and you're reaping the rewards. And then I see that the Hurian Hymn is on YouTube. It's a song that's 6,000 years old. It's played by some guy on a liar, and it's had 8 million views on YouTube. 8 million. An old hymn for a religion that does not even exist. It's a hymn to the goddess of orchards. Eight million. And that's not even counting. That's just YouTube. That's not even counting other platforms like Spotify or Mummify, as one YouTube commentator suggested. What a wag. Mummify. This is hearing hymn number six. Okay. Take that, Pete Townsend. Okay, let's get back to the email. And Lucian, Jonathan says, quote, This is like the Hurian Hymn, a 6,000-year-old song that is still listenable, or perhaps Lord of the Rings. In short, it is a really easy tale to read. It's not Proust or Thucydides, which, of course, are incredible but difficult. A true story is an easy tale, particularly if you like fantasy. End quote. Okay, thank you very much, Jonathan. I will check it out. I haven't read much Lucian, although that was one of the authors on my college roommate's bookshelf. Those Loeb classical library books in red and green. Lucian was there along with the others, and in some ways... I've been spending my adult life trying to work my way through those books, catching up to where my college roommate was at age 18. (laughs) Maybe now is the time, and we start today with Aristophanes coming up soon. Oh, I swear to all that is holy, my producer is one step away from driving me into insanity. Listener Jennifer, moving on. Listener Jennifer is mining the archives and has found a little trove a seam of quality ore in our list, our interviews with women genre writers. I mean women writers who work in genre, writers who are women who work in genre. Christina Kovac and Rada Vatsal. And yes, I agree. Those two were excellent guests, and their books are wonderful. Rada, Rada's been on twice. Rada writes historical fiction with a focus on the period in New York City between the World Wars with a great protagonist, Kitty Weeks, who's kind of in the muckraking school in that world we talked about when we talked about Juna Barnes and Willa Cather and McClure's magazine with Ida Tarbell taking on the robber barons, a great era for women journalists. And the books by Rada are highly recommended. I read those Kitty Weeks books on a plane back when I could fly places. Christina Kovac wrote a contemporary thriller that drew upon her work as a television news producer. Both of those interviews were a lot of fun to do, and you can find those episodes in our archives and those books wherever you get your books. I'll put links to them in the show notes. Also, Anna North, another one who writes in the an updated Western. Jennifer is an academic working on her own novel. Good luck to you, listener Jennifer. I'm sure that's going to be excellent as well. And thank you for signing up for the Patreon account. As always... Your generosity is much appreciated. And finally, listener Ross sends news from mile 300 of the Pacific Crest Trail, where the podcast has been keeping him company for the last three weeks. He was reading Nausgaard before he left, but the book was too large and cumbersome to take in his backpack, so he was glad to have the show that Mike and I did on Nausgaard to tide him over. Ross is looking forward to listening to more episodes as he heads northward into Canada. Good luck, Ross! Stay safe on the trail. Happy trails, I guess I should say or could say. And thank you for the email. We are thankful to all our emailers here on the History of Literature and to all our listeners and supporters. You are the lifeblood of the show. I am very fortunate indeed. Okay, Aristophanes. We don't know a lot about him other than what he himself revealed in his plays. And we only have 11 of his 40 plays. But that's actually a lot by ancient standards. To have 11 full plays gives us a sense of how valued he was that his plays survived. We also know that he was valued based on the references that others make to him. 
We know that he won prizes, and we know references like Plato. We have his reference. He kind of attributed the trial of Socrates to the famous portrayal of Socrates in Aristophanes' play, The Clouds. In Plato's Apology, Socrates calls Aristophanes his first accuser and reflects on the general misunderstanding that had taken hold in the public mind regarding him, including from this play. And this misunderstanding helped lead to the eventual eventual trial and execution of Socrates. It's a lot of power for a comedian to have, both within Athens and in the course of human history. While we don't know a lot about Aristophanes, the man who wielded this power, we do know a lot about the Athens of his day. This was early in the Peloponnesian War, when Athens was fighting Sparta and Aristophanes was against the war. He wasn't against war in general, necessarily. He expresses some reverence for the older generations and the famous victories like those at Marathon. Maybe for him, this was like Vietnam after World War II. Wow, you look at the past and everything looks glorious, and then you look at the present and you say, whoa, this is the gang we have to carry out this war this bunch of crooks and liars and fools. Where's FDR? Where's Churchill? Where's Eisenhower? Maybe that's how war always looks to a contemporary, to a cynic. In the past, we see Napoleon in our mind's eye. We see Napoleon gallantly maneuvering his troops like a chess master or valiantly crossing the mountains on his horse. In the present, We see looters getting rich and corrupt, politicians lying their asses off, and one strategic blunder after another. But Aristophanes was more than just anti-war. He was also ready to skewer philosophers and other playwrights and society in general and people in power. This was a period of religious festivals. Remember the Linnea and the Dionysia? The Dionysia, of course, takes its name from the god of wine, Dionysus, and Linnea probably comes from the word for wine press, or was related to the female worshippers of Dionysus. So these were religious, but they were more revelry than reverent, it seems, more like a big party or a gala. Think Woodstock with plays on the stage instead of rock bands, and oh, does that not make you want to see such a thing, to go to one, attend one. Maybe Stratford, Ontario is the closest thing I've seen to that. 10,000 people watched the plays at the Dionysia. Three tragedies, a satyr play, which was a satyr play. was a mix, satyr, S-A-T-Y-R, a mix of comedy and tragedy, a play about mythological heroes that frankly sounds kind of odd, at least to my ear. I have no real desire to see a satyr play. Don't at me, bro, all you Seder fans. I don't like fart jokes. That's just a thing with me. Sorry to all you fans of those. And as if those four plays weren't enough, the crowd would also watch a comedy, and they were also getting hammered and having visions and watching rituals like animal sacrifice and watching poetic contests and so on. And the plays were judged in this complicated way a winner for tragedy and a winner for comedy, and the winners got Aretha Vivi. Aristophanes took second with his first entry, and the following year he won. And we don't know all the victories, but he seems to have won at least four of these prizes in the two festivals, although there were also years when he finished dead last. Aristophanes also makes a cameo appearance in Plato in the Symposium, where he and Socrates discuss the treatment of of, uh, Socrates in the clouds. It's generally good-natured. Plato seems to have liked Aristophanes personally, although, as I mentioned, he does seem to argue that Aristophanes making fun of Soc- uh, Aristophanes making fun of Socrates helped put the wheels in motion for the trial and death of Socrates. Okay, we've barely scratched the surface of Aristophanes, but that's okay. Sometimes you scratch a surface and you just need to stop, stop scratching. Maybe this is one of those surfaces. The good news is we have a guest here to talk about Aristophanes and the plays and what they mean for us today. Aaron Puchigian, after this. (music) 
Okay, joining me now is Aaron Puchigian, who has translated works by classical authors like Sappho and Apollonius and Euripides, and whose own poetry has appeared in Best American Poetry and the Paris Review. He's here today to talk about his latest work, a beautiful new translation of four plays by Aristophanes, Clouds, Birds, Lysistrata, and Women of the Assembly. Aaron Puchigian, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you for having me here. I'm excited to be here. So this is such a beautiful book. I'm going to say with Father's Day coming up, this is a great uh, gift option for those people who have bookish dads. It's a, a solid and worthy choice with a beautiful dust jacket and lots of treasures within. I hope I'm not embarrassing you with, with this lavish praise right at the beginning here. No, sir. Bring it on. <laughs> okay, so a new translation of Aristophanes. Was this a request from a publisher or editor, or was this an itch that you wanted to scratch? Both. Um, mm. I should explain. I um, had translated Euripides' Bacchae, um, and mm -hmm. that had been picked up by Norton. That had been a stage production, um, a translation I'd done for the stage. And the editor and I, um, Pete Simon at Norton, were deciding what else I might do for them. Mm, mm -hmm. And we decided on this. And yes, what, what, whatever one's political leanings, 2017 to 2021 was a very charged political time yes. that had its own distinctive political discourse. And we decided that most timely, partly um, for the virulence and the vehemence of the politi political re rhetoric, and partly because of the obscenity of many of these plays, um, that four plays by Aristophanes, the ones I selected, would be most appropriate for the period in question, mm. for the, yes, contemporary audience. Right. Well, that leads to two huge areas that I want to talk about with you eventually. One of them is satire, and the other one is why you chose these plays. But before we get there, let's talk about you a little bit. I understand you have a background as a classicist, and I'm wondering what drew you to the classics? Um, I do have a PhD in classics. Hmm. I actually had a religious experience when I was 18 years old, an hmm. undergraduate. I was reading in a humanities textbook the opening lines of Virgil's epic, the Aeneid, Ooh. in Latin. Yes. I didn't know Latin at the time. And the sky became brighter and everything became clear. Uh, clearer, and I knew that I was supposed to be a poet, and I was supposed to learn the classical languages. Yeah. And so I spent the rest of my undergraduate school doing so, but felt I still didn't know Greek and Latin well enough. And so I went to a PhD program, and I got everything I wanted, and of course, quite a bit more. There are lots of academic responsibilities as well. Yeah. Um, so once that, one becomes a professor. That line, it's of arms and the man I sing, right? Yes. Okay. Of arms and the man, I, I, I sing of arms and the man who first from the shores of Troy came to yes. Italy and the Lavinian shores. <laughs> but for you, it was just seeing the words or just the sound of them as you were sounding them out in your seeing mind? Seeing the words and sounding them out to myself, yes, yeah, caused this, yeah, this revelation, wow. if you will, in me. Set you and on your way. Did you, yes, have I you knew, ever, yes. uh, go, I'm sorry, I interrupted, I probably. No, no, you go ahead, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, did you ever trace that back? Was it, do you feel like you were, I mean, I guess you could, you could, you could believe that you are a reincarnated spirit or something, but I'm wondering if, <laughs> did you feel like you were tapping into something that you felt like was bigger than you and, and the history of it? Or what was it about seeing those words that set you on this path? When, yes, ever since 18, I've known, I guess I can say, I've, I've known exactly what I've wanted to do. And I've, I've never wavered for a second, you know, for richer or poorer in sickness yeah. and in health. I've been married to this enterprise. Yeah. But um, I realize, looking back on it now, um, with more experience, um, especially um, both in literature and in religious matters, I'm very interested in, for example, William James's um, Varieties of Religious Experience. Uh -huh. And my, my new original poetry book, American Divine, is mostly about um, a variety of American religious experiences. Um, I realize, looking back, that my epiphany still um, fulfills a pattern that's fairly common in young people that defines the subsequent course of their life. Yeah. And so I was excited to find in William James a number of quotes from pamphlets from the 19th century and other accounts that corresponded with my own religious experience. Yeah. And 
subsequently, yes, I guess there is, I don't want to sound too arrogant, but um, I, I, whether or not I'm successful, I'll say, right? I do, there is the Vatic tradition. Um, it comes V-A-T-I-C, yeah. and it comes from the Latin word Vates or Vates, V-A-T-E-S, which means bard or singer. And so we have in the American tradition, Vatic poets like Walt Whitman, for example, mm. who had himself a kind of epiphany and spent the rest of his life, especially in Leaves of Grass, expanding Leaves of Grass, trying to capture the details, um, how he saw the world after this epiphany. Yeah. And so I guess I see myself as being in that tradition. Yeah. Right. So you don't look at it and say, oh, looking back, I realize I was lonely and searching for something or I was restless and needed a big topic to sink my teeth into. It's for you more like being struck by the muse or or uh, a chord within you was played. It was. In fact, at the time, I was a music composition major, yeah. and I was um, frustrated with that for a variety of reasons, partly because the department I was in didn't like traditional harmony, and I wanted to figure out how to compose 20th century symphonies, but they were mostly interested in electronic music. So I was a little disaffected at the time, and I was happy then to have this revelation and to have the matter settled um, yeah. and just know yeah, what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Well, I am going to go out on a limb and say that this is a very interesting exchange we've just had. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that for a lot of people, being a translator probably seems like a lot of a lot of challenging, difficult work where it's almost like homework, you know, kind of a uh, uh, there's a bit of a rote quality to it. And maybe it's something people are good at and they do because they know they can knock these things out. But for you, I'm guessing it's much more of a uh, deeper experience for you to be inside these texts and working with these languages. And it, it just seems like that's the way you would approach translating something like Aristophanes. Yes, translation uh, always did come easily for me, sort of like breathing. Mm -hmm. um, it just seemed a natural thing for me to do. But it's been good for me in a variety of ways. I mean, in respect to my original poetry, it helps me expand. Because, um, you know, poets talk often about finding one's voice. Yeah. But translation allowed me to find voices, a yeah. wide variety of voices and ranges. And also in trying to bring um, the forms of ancient Greek poetry over into English, mm. um, I was challenged technically. Yeah. And so there were a variety of, I, I call them, some of my translations were more like craft exercises mm. in which I was pushing myself not only to impersonate a voice, but also to find in the English tradition forms that replicate the effect of yeah. forms in the ancient Greek system, because the poetic systems are very different um, yeah. to yeah. go for the effect rather than translating, as I see it, into the original meters, which mean differently in English. Yeah. So you, in the introduction, you mentioned the rollicking anapestic heptameters as one of the challenges <laughs> with Aristophanes. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit for the listeners. Yes. And so an anapest is a meter that goes short, short, long. Yeah. Bum, 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 bum. And um, Aristophanes uses them for a variety of purposes. In the um, section you're talking about, yes, the anapestic heptameters. Heptameter means seven units of anapests. Hmm. So short, short, long, short, short, long. But the interesting thing is, because this is a quantitative metrical system, two shorts equal a long, and to keep it from being just a monotonous string of anapests, you can substitute a long for the two shorts, because it works out to be in 4-4 four, four time. I'm bringing it back to my music composition major, major. Short, short, long, short, short, long equals four beats, and so you can go long, long, and do other substitutions. And so I wanted to bring, in particular, um, I generally avoided translating into original meters. And I, mm. I would only call this roughly an original meter, but I felt obliged here because Aristophanes himself mentions what meter he'll be switching to next. 
And so it was clear that I had to replicate it accurately. Those ended up being the longest lines in the book. In substantial confections of clay, frail mortals, ephemeral, featherless beings, ineffectual weaklings who live in a dream and who perish like leaves. Mm. (laughs) Right. Well, I'm interested in that, but that does seem like, it seems like something uh, even even more interesting are the decisions you make that what strikes the Greek ear in one way is not going to strike the English reader's ear in the modern day and how you have to work with different musical structures or, or I think you said musical systems. Yeah. So, for example, what might sound like, uh, I'm, I'm guessing it might be humorous, it might, it might trigger a, a, an expectation that you were you are hearing something humorous that might be different in ancient Greek from English. What rhythm would be called for? Is that the kind of thing that you're uh, talking about? I, I agree, and I, I can give you a concrete example. Yeah, good. The opening line of the epic, um, the Iliad by Homer, mm. begins in a quantitative system, right? And so two shorts equal a long, and it's musical. Mm-hmm. But if you take that over and you translate it into our qualitative system, what you end up is the rhythm of hickory dickory dock. Right, um, right. Instead of main in our A that they are, um, because um, we're not, we don't, in our metro system, don't count length, but rather stress. Mm. And so you're right, it ends up being comical sounding. And that's exactly what you don't want when translating the great epic of Homer, the Iliad. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I've heard one way of maybe making this clear for for listeners. This is, I guess, an analogy that just popped into my mind is I've heard uh, young children hear Chinese being spoken and saying, why does everybody sound so angry? And I've heard uh, when I was in Taiwan, I would talk to Chinese speaking children and they would hear me talking to their teachers in English and they would say, why does every, you know, why does the teacher sound like he's so bored or why does it sound so, you know, they, they don't hear any of the accents and the tones in the, you know, that they're used to hearing. And so it sounds to them like everything in English sounded like it was mumbling unless you really exaggerated some of the pronunciations and, and uh, tonality of it. And I, it seems like if you're going for an effect and you're trying to replicate an effect, I could see how that could backfire on you if you were trying to just recreate things in the exact meter that they were in their original language. Yes, thank you. I mean, that's an excellent example. I don't, I have a great desire to learn um, Tang Chinese, to learn Mandarin Mm. Chinese from the classical period. Um, And that's fascinating to me, but it has pitches and it would simply, it's just, it's not a question of, approximating it in English, it's simply impossible to bring over into English. Yeah. Okay, so let's set aside for now the language translation and the the musicality of it, and let's just talk about Aristophanes and what drew you to him as a figure and as a writer and the uh, voice and the sensibility that you were seeing in his plays. He seemed the perfect figure to translate in the period I was translating him over the last um, four years leading up until the publication of the book. Because of his political discourse, his virulent political discourse, Mm. the Athenians enjoyed a freedom of speech as broad as our own. It's called parasia in ancient Greek. And Aristophanes and the old comedians, the other authors of old comedy, it seems, made full use of it. And in fact, it's in a sense even broader than our own in that when Aristophanes would perform the, have these comedies performed at the theater of Dionysus in Athens, nearly every adult male citizen was in attendance. And so they would be called out and insulted by name. And I Mm. imagine members of the audience (laughs) turning and looking, for example, at Cleon and laughing in his face. Mm. And so it is a, rabid form of political discourse that calls all kinds of unacceptable behavior out in a very public way. Mm. And I imagine that serving as a check on the behavior of politicians, knowing that they could be lampooned in this way. And I saw a a similar 
virulence of political discourse uh, in America at that time. Um, again, whatever one's political leanings, uh, yeah. similar, a similar intensity and harshness of political discourse. Right. And so, yes, that's why I came up with this concept of patriotic obscenity. Yeah. That um, with his obscenity, Aristophanes was doing a service to the democracy. I think what we learned in America over the last four years is that sometimes taking the high road doesn't work. I have nothing but respect for Michelle Obama. Um, but what we learned is what she said no longer operated in the, in the political sphere. What she said was, if they go low, you go high. Ideally, that would be the way we'd go. But what we found was rather when what Aristophanes profounds, what um, Aristophanes propounds, excuse me, is that when they go low, you have to go equally low or lower, mm. or you just might lose a democracy. Right. So what was happening at the time in Athens that needed this remedy from Aristophanes? There was in, there was the Peloponnesian War, the long-standing Peloponnesian War, uh, mm -hmm. which lasted for most of um, well for much of Aristophanes' creative, productive life, and so there was the great statesman Pericles, mm -hmm. who was more or less in charge of the government, um, prominent, I'll say, even though it was a radical democracy, he was prominent and influential. Um, and he took a more reserved approach to the war with Sparta, recognizing that it would be a long one. Whereas there was a war hawk politician, Cleon, who encouraged a more aggressive stance towards Sparta. Mm. And Aristophanes lampoons him viciously. It's hard to come up with an analogy for that kind of hatred, like spit on his grave hatred yeah. for Cleon. And partly this is because um, of what Aristophanes saw as destructive military advice, dangerous military advice. Right. And partly I confess that it's snobbery on Aristophanes' part in that he doesn't like that Cleon is a populist, yeah. which is relevant here. And he also didn't like that Cleon made his money from trade. And so he oh. teases him for being descended from tanners. Yeah. And so um, Aristophanes, yes, is certainly not above a kind of classic classicist, a cla not classicist, <laughs> classicist, classicist, excuse me, yeah. <laughs> snobbery. But so there's you... plenty of classicist snobbery. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've encountered plenty of that. So I was it just a policy difference that he was anti-war and he thought Cleon was in favor of war or was Cleon corrupt or was he uh, lying to the people or were there attacks on democracy that Aristophanes felt needed to be called out? Throughout the old comedies and with Cleon in particular, there are accusations of political graft. Mm. Um, it was desirable to get one's hands to be chosen or to by lot or by election for these prominent political positions, because then one had access to the great amount of money stored on the Acropolis in Athens. And it's all the money that came in from the Athenian Empire, all the money that came mm. in from the islands and other colonies of Athens. Yeah. And so Cleon is accused of graft, and many other politicians are publicly and to their face, what was to their face, accused of stealing public funds. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to ask you about some examples of satire that we're familiar with today to see if there was a comparison. And I, I had on there Saturday Night Live and uh, The Daily Show, which I was more familiar with, with, with Jon Stewart than I have been lately. But it, it almost sounds like if they were present, it, it called to mind a roast or the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which I think they've stopped now, but something where the person was there, except it doesn't sound like any of that would capture the viciousness of it. Um, no, I like, yes, the, the, um, I like the roast as an analogy. And um, also, yes, what's, well, I think, you're right. It has, the practice has been discontinued. We'll see if it'll be resumed. But I think it was the, 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 press, the press dinner. Is that right with the president? Yeah, the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Yeah. That's right. The yeah. White House Correspondents' Dinner. Um, and that's good because you have the people who are being lampooned present and the lampoons are happening to their face. Yeah. And so um, I find with the nastiness of it and the obscenity of it, 
um, that we don't have a contemporary parallel. The probably the closest thing is an obscene, long-running, obscene cartoon television show called South Park. Oh, um, right. I don't, yep. I don't know if you've ever seen an episode of South Park, but it is frequently obscene. Yeah. Um, and it uses obscenity as um, and the bodily functions, you know, whether it be sex. Um, whatever kind of sex or whether it be other bodily functions, um, such as defecation, um, as metaphors in order to lampoon, um, political figures. And that's the closest that I've seen to what Aristophanes does, um, in the clouds, for example, he reduces all of these highfalutin philosophical, um, concepts. Um, to, to describe how the universe works, he reduce, reduces them to bodily functions um, like defecation and flatulence mm. in order to lampoon them. Yeah. And similarly, in Lysistrata, um, most everything in one way or another is reduced to sex. Yeah. Okay. So I have uh, another idea for an analogy that came up. I want to ask you about another comparison I made. But before I do that, let's wrap up Cleon. What happened to Aristophanes when he took on Cleon? He was twice tried, um, twice brought to court for Cleon, once on the charge of Xenia, um, that is a being of foreign birth. That's a common, that's a common slander or one, um, an aspersion one casts on one enemy, on one's enemies. One needed to have parents um, who were both Athenian in order to be an Athenian citizen. Mm. And so you try in court to prove that one of your enemy's parents was not an Athenian. And that did not hold up. And then he was also charged, Aristophanes, by Cleon for harming the Republic. And that, to me, sounds like a challenge to Athenian parousia, or the the freedom of speech. And again, Aristophanes was acquitted. And then, not long thereafter, Cleon was chosen as general and died on campaign. Mm. So what can we say is the acquittal, can we say that that's a feather in the cap of Athenians that they chose on the side of free speech and, and Aristophanes? Uh, I do. Yeah. I, I do think it's a feather in the cap of Athenians. And it's, it seems it was as difficult to accuse, to, to um, convict someone of libel as it is um, yeah. in America today. Right. And that is a good thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. As I see it. Yes. Right. It's always good when there's a preference for for poetry over politics. Yes. Okay, so let me roll out my other comparison. And this comes out of, I'm going to take no credit for this because it, it just popped into my mind when I was reading your introduction. And when you were going through Aristophanes and how many of his plays center around a great idea. And mm-hmm. the thing that came to mind was the Twilight Zone. And the way that those episodes will say something about society by changing something in some significant way and then kind of following that through and saying, you know, if we like, let's say if a a UFO arrived, here's what would happen. Here's how we are and here's what we would do. And it seems like Aristophanes, some of his plays have a similar kind of hook where they they make a change like that. And then they kind of say, and don't we all know how this would really end up? And then you watch that happen and you watch it unfold. Does that seem fair to you? I think that's a great analogy. And for a number of reasons, Um, it works most closely. Yes, as you said, with the great idea scheme, which is the structure of all four of the plays um, in, yes, in this volume we're discussing. It works particularly well with the fantasy setting of Birds, the second play, Mm. um, which is the only play set outside of Athens proper that was performed in Athens. The dramatic setting is outside of Athens proper. And that involves a kind of fantasy situation in which an ideal city, a utopia, is created. But I also, thinking back to those um, Twilight Zone episodes, which I always enjoy when I see one. There also, a lot of them had to do, given the time period when they were made, with a fear of communism. And that um, fits in really well 
with the last play in this volume, in uh, The Women of the Assembly, in which we have a series of, um, well, the, the entire female population taking over the government and voting to hand the government over to the women who then proceed to radically communalize it. Yeah. Radically, yeah. Um, and they communalize everything, um, all property, all meals, and there's no more marriage, there's no more private property, there's no more owning an, another individual, a male owning a female as a wife, but everyone is free to have sex with everyone else um, with some few stipulations. Yeah. We get in that play a kind of communistic democracy. And it expressed the real anxiety on the parts of males about females mm. and also about um, a more communal form of government that I thought was particularly relevant because in the years in which I was translating these plays, there were a number, there still are, a number of prominent female congressmen, mostly on the left. In fact, at one point they were known as the squad yeah, who were right. accused of trying to socialize our government. And it was very parallel to um, what Pro Proxagora is the lead female mm. and the other um, Athenian females attempt to do in Women of the Assembly. And yeah. so, yes, I see that as relevant both to the um, your Twilight Zone analogy, which is brilliant, um, and I'll use it myself, um, <laughs> and, um, yes, contemporary politics. Yeah, and then Lysistrata, the one that it's the one we just can't quit, the idea of men go to war and women threaten to withhold sex until they get the men. I mean, that's that's... One of the most famous ideas for a play, I think. I think it just keeps recurring. It, it didn't Spike Lee have a movie that was sort of based on this not too long he ago? Did. And yeah, he did indeed. It yes. is it is such a uh, fantastic idea. But I do think that if a modern reader is looking for Aristophanes to kind of expose all of the things that we might today want exposed, like the hypocrisy of hypermasculinity or the, uh, I'm thinking of this being a slaveholding society and we might look to it being, well, you know, aren't there hypocrisies there? It seems like a modern reader might come away a little bit disappointed. Uh, is that your take on this, that, that Aristophanes is not, <laughs> he's not John Stewart? He is not. No, um, certainly. And there are a lot, with Lysistrata in particular, there are a lot of people, contemporary theorists and critics, who want to see in the character of Lysistrata a proto-feminist hero. In that she is in charge and right. she ends the war and she's briefly um, basically in charge of Athens. Uh, but there are a number of problems with that, in particular the slavery issue. Mm. Um, the characters in, our, in Aristophanes, um, whether they're male or female, as long as they're Athenian citizens like the males or they're married to an Athenian citizen, they presuppose slavery as the basis of the economy. Yeah. Aristophanes at no point um, in the plays I've translated and um, in other, uh, the other plays as well suggest uh, yeah, the end of slavery. Right. And so even in Lysistrata, in which all these females and we're excited are banding together to end the war, Lysistrata is very rude to a Scythian slave girl, a captive from war who is her servant, her slave. Similarly, Proxagora in Women of the Assembly, the lead female in Women of the Assembly, um, when we're asked how this communistic democracy is going to operate, she says, well, the slaves will work the soil. And yeah. you guys can, you men can just relax and sit at home all day and go out for dinner. It is ugly. It's the dark side of um, Aristophanic comedy, yeah. certainly. And the slaves occasionally are named. They have stock slave names, and they're usually treated terribly and insulted as being stupid. Yeah, it seems like such a softball to our modern sensibility that if you're if you're someone who is is going to take aim at all of the foibles of society and you're going to knock people down a peg that you it just seems like such a no brainer that you would have a man who is always, you know, waxing eloquent about freedom, but then is uh, an owner of slaves and, and a slaveholder and, and doesn't see his own hypocrisy. Do you think that Aristophanes, was that just a boat he didn't want to rock or he just was blinded to it? I assume that he, like the rest of his contemporary male Athenians, 
were simply blinded. To yeah, it. yeah. They certainly enjoyed Athens at the time when Aristophanes was working and writing, enjoyed a great deal of, well, luxuriance and right. success and wealth. And I know I don't doubt that they felt they deserved it. There mm-hmm. are arguments presented, for example, in Pericles' funeral oration in by Thucydides, um, in which Pericles, as a character, uh, argues justifies this um, extreme wealth of the Athenians. And so I assume that he, Aristophanes, and his male characters, and even his female characters, are all simply blind to the injustice of slavery. Yeah. Well, I have a question that I wanted to ask, and now I want to turn it inside out. But first, I'll just ask it straight. (laughs) I'll ask it the way I was planning to ask it, which is how much history do we need to know in order to understand the humor or the targets of satire here? It just seems like a, you know, a satire from a couple thousand years ago would fly over our heads, but also just the history and knowing what was important to Athenians at the time and what what Aristophanes' targets were and that kind of thing. Does it feel to you like this is difficult to read unless you have some background in the history or read enough to know what it is that you're reading? I provided the introduction a general history of Athens at the time, but I chose, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a man of the stage. And so my nothing and nothing is lamer than a joke that needs to be explained, yeah. <laughs> um, certainly. Um, and so right. I very much am a man of the stage and I wanted my audience to get these jokes and to be laughing in order mm. for these translations to be successful. Yeah. And so I chose plays that were the four plays that were more liberated from the historical context Mm. than others. Mm -hmm. Birds, for example, is, though Lysistrata has to do with the Peloponnesian War, which is contemporary history, it applies most to any war. It's generally applicable. Um, Similarly, there are always snobby intellectuals who are hard to understand. And so clouds lampooning them is always relevant. And Women of the Assembly was also forever relevant. There were other plays that are famous, such as The Frogs of Aristophanes, that we considered doing, but I decided not to do it because that play features prominently the characters Aeschylus and Euripides. Mm. And I did not, and then lots of quotes from their poetry, and I did not want to do a translation that was so dependent on notes and awareness of literary context. And so we mixed that one, and I was happy to do Women of the Assembly instead, which is, yes, more universal, and also was very timely. Um, and I think still is. Um, for, oh, go, I can keep. Yes, go ahead. Let me let me just say I'm. I think that's a great answer. I'm really glad I did ask the question. Uh, the way that I was going to uh, turn that inside out. What occurred to me as we were talking earlier is the reading Aristophanes points you toward the history that it when you see things that seem kind of off or or make you puzzled or make you wonder, well, why is it that this would even be the way that this character would be approaching this situation or this problem? It kind of encourages you to go and learn more about Athens and the Athenians in order to kind of understand the mindset that would have informed some of these decisions and lines of dialogue. Certainly. Um, I can cite as an example the character of Socrates Mm. in Clouds. Whereas he's a a household thing. Most people have heard of Socrates. And they um, may even know about the death of Socrates by Hemlock. Mm -hmm. Um, He was executed. But he's generally regarded as a saintly figure, a kind of martyr for the truth. Whereas in Aristophanes' play, The Clouds, he is one of the bad guys. He's a shyster. Yeah, right. A shyster intellectual who is just trying to get money out of, um, yes, um, a variety of people. And so that play, the ugliest of Aristophanes' plays, ends with violence, ends with the school, the thinkery, the frontisterian over which Socrates presides, being burnt down. Yeah. Um, um, and so the, I can imagine that dissonance between the standard conception of Socrates. I've actually been asked about this by students. Yeah. Um, and so we've read um, Plato's Apology, a speech by Socrates in which he's saintly, and then the portrayal of him here. Yeah. And that would then, that does drive you, that dissonance 
would drive a reader to find out more about the complexities the of the intellectual environment of Athens. Oh, it really does. Time. Yeah, that's a great example because it does, you know, Plato has so much reverence for Socrates. And, and if you read enough Plato, you do kind of wonder. We know they're, you know, Plato, obviously, he knew the historical Socrates, but he also kind of has invented him for us in a way. We only... You know, our main conception of Socrates comes from Plato and what Plato wanted us to think of Socrates. But even the even the, the Socrates that's in Plato can be a little bit irritating and a little bit holier than thou and a little bit always correct at and times. a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And there's times where you <laughs> sort of get frustrated by, you know, did this really go so well? This like so many of the dialogues seem to be so tilted in Socrates's favor that I always feel a little bit. Uh, so to have the Arist <laughs> to have Aristophanes giving us a completely different view of Socrates that is uh, that is somewhat irreverent is a nice antidote. I agree. Yes, certainly. And um, yes, having taught Plato, certainly students at times will find Socrates obnoxious. Yeah, and it seems. Um, Aristophanes certainly did as well. <laughs> okay, well, I have a surprise bonus question for you. All right. Are you ready? Uh, yes. Okay. One day, you wander down to Greenwich Village and find yourself mm -hmm. in an unassuming building with a humble little theater inside. An old man with bright eyes is leaning against the wall, watching a production of Clouds. You feel drawn to him for some reason, and after the play is over, your eyes meet. Now you know why there was a bond. This is actually Aristophanes, who by some miracle has been placed into the body of an elderly gentleman and has been living in New York City for the past 50 years. He refuses to admit it, but when you address him <laughs> in ancient Greek, he smiles and says in perfect English, All right, I'll give you one hour. Three things come to mind. Number one. You happen to have your translation of his plays on you. You could give that to him, have him read parts of it, and give you some feedback on your work. Number two, you also have a copy of your own poems. You could hand those over, ask him to read them, and see what he thinks. And number three, you could ignore literature altogether and ask him what he thinks of American politics today. Which do you choose? Wow. I confess that I am enough of an original poet that I would hand him um, my most recent book, um, <laughs> American Divine, and ask his opinion of it, only, if only because yeah. he proves in his plays that he is a master reader of tragic poetry in particular, and of Dithyram and of all the Greek genres, he lampoons epic as mm. well. And yeah. so he knows poetry inside and out, and he's a virtuoso formalist. Yeah. And so I would love to get, he dotes on, for example, strained metaphors in Euripides. He makes fun of Euripides, the foot of time, and blustering um, Aeschylus, whom I love as well. Yeah. And so I would, yeah, I would love to get his critical opinion of my original work. And I confess, I would be a little scared to show him. I was just going to um, say. Yeah. my translation <laughs> oh, oh, okay. um, of his work. <laughs> I was going to say, though, if give it, would, would giving him your poetry, is there a monkey's paw scenario here where he then roasts you and turns his, his satirical wit against you in such a way that you end up regretting that you ever uh, put yourself forward? Or would that be, would you consider, are you, are you big enough that you would consider that to be a, 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 an honor and a pleasure? I would consider that an honor and a pleasure. There is, in fact, a prominent critic who's famous for trashing everyone. Yeah, He trashes all the, the biggest poets, and he has a copy of my book, and I'm hoping he trashes me in his, next, in his next review. I would be honored to be trashed by him and by Aristophanes. Right. Well, <laughs> well, we uh, treat people with much more kindness and <laughs> with a much more gentle approach here at the History of Literature, but we are very grateful that you came. The book is Four Plays by Aristophanes, and the translator is Aaron Puchigian. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Aaron Puchigian for helping us to sort through the life and times of 
Aristophanes and the works he left behind. Inspiring and a wonderful book. Go and see the plays if you can and go and get the book. You can follow the links from our show notes or from historyofliterature.com. That would really help us out. We'll also have some links to some other works in there, including those by our friends Rada Vatsal, Anna North, and Christina Kovac. My thanks also to our emailing listeners and to all the supporters of the show in general. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you take the time to join us and review and comment and all those other good things and pass them along. I'm grateful to those of you who mentioned the show to your friends and loved ones. We are struggling along. We're certainly not a runaway freight train of success like the Hurian hymn, to be sure, currently blowing up the charts on Mummify, but we do our best to keep our wheels on the track and our little engine chugging its way up the gentle slope that to us seems like a mountain. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>